be seated. My name is Art Alice Green. We welcome all of you on social media and live here um, in our Family Life Center. One of the traditional greetings at this time of year is Happy Thanksgiving. Sometime in the next few days, you're going to wish someone a happy Thanksgiving. As we close out our study in First and Second Thessalonians, um, it's called Rooted because we're talking about being rooted in the faith. I want to talk about happiness because your turn will come at the Thanksgiving table. The question, what are you thankful for? Or what are you happy about? I've never really met, I've never met somebody. Have you met somebody in your life who said, I don't want to be happy? happy? Happiness is what most people want. What's ironic to me is that people who don't want to be happy find happiness in their unhappiness. It's not enough to be miserable alone. They need to find something negative to complain about and make everybody else miserable. My assessment of American life right now is that there's not many people that are happy. People are taking down their Halloween fall decorations and putting up their Christmas decorations trying to get happy. Christmas trees and Christmas decorations make Sharon happy. More than taking rust off bolts. I think she has 13 Christmas trees at her house, so Paul is a good man to help her put those up. Lily, Sharon, uh, and Paul's daughter wondered if Christmas would be canceled this year. You see, there's a longing in the human heart for celebration, for rejoicing, for laughter, for being together. And the longer this goes on, the more we feel isolated, cut off, disconnected from each other. People behind their masks seem to me to be worried and stressed and strained and afraid. But God wired us to be happy. Augustine, writing in the third century, said, Every man, whatever his condition, whether he is young or old, whether he is rich or poor, whether he is healthy or sick, employed or unemployed, every man, no matter what his condition, desires to be healthy and happy. Would you agree with Augustine that every man wants to be happy? Some find happiness through cooking. I spent some time this week with Virginia, Virginia McLaughlin, who is now 98 years old. She compiled a cookbook of her favorite recipes, and her son, Salyer, has learned to cook for her some of the dishes that she likes in her last days. She's in hospice care now. He finds joy in cooking for his mom, kneading the dishes together. Some find happiness in a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And one way to bless somebody is to bring them exactly the kind of coffee or tea they like to drink. Blasé Pascal, writing in the 16th century, said, All men seek after happiness. This is without exception. Now, mothers and grandmothers often wonder, what will make people happy? When I was with Virginia, I saw there Nancy. She was taking care of Virginia, which is a beautiful thing. And Salyer brought in his daughter, little daughter, Harper, two years old. And Nancy was trying to figure out what would make her granddaughter happy. She offered her a muffin. What raises a question in my mind, can I be happy if somebody else is unhappy? Or more specifically, can I be happy if someone is unhappy with me? Let's say we gather together as a family for Thanksgiving and somebody is unhappy with you. Is it possible to carry happiness when someone is unhappy with you? In your lifetime, you will find people that are critical and negative 
And you'll try to figure out, at least I did when I was younger, how to make them happy. And then I learned I'm not responsible for their happiness. And I learned I could be happy if someone is unhappy with me. Mick Jagger, the lead singer for the Rolling Stones, sang, I can't get no... Right, you knew the song. (laughs) And about the time he wrote that song, a reporter asked him, are you happy? He said, you just asked me if I'm happy. I just bought a Rolls Royce. I just moved into a mansion. You asked, am I happy? I am not. Before I talk about what makes me happy, let me be clear about some things that will never make you happy. Number one, trying to be beautiful or trying to be handsome will not make you happy. One of the great lies of our day is I must be beautiful or handsome to be happy. Now, I'm not arguing against getting your hair done or trying to make the most of what you have or getting your nails done if that makes you happy. But it's not a happiness that lasts. Girls say I'm not as beautiful or thin as the girls in the magazines. Therefore, I can't be happy. We are unhappy with our body shapes. Guys say, if I'm not as handsome or as buff as the guy in the movie, I can't be happy. The latest statistics are 94% of girls under 18 wish they were more beautiful. They don't believe that they are beautiful as they are. And 85% of women over 40 believe they're not as attractive as the average woman. In in the year before COVID, we spent $11.4 billion in America on cosmetic surgery. People say, I'm unhappy with some of the parts of my body. (laughs) How do you feel when you look in the mirror? I want to look like the model in the magazine. Newsflash. The model in in real life doesn't look like the model in the magazine. Some believe that the rise of the selfie, trying to look good in the selfie, has contributed to cosmetic surgery. I just want to say that God has made you beautiful as you are. Secondly, having as many possessions as Mick Jagger will not bring you happiness. Now, possessions may make your life more comfortable for a while. We have a refrigerator that has now gone out three times in the last year. Most notably, the blueberries from Michigan went down. So I can testify that possessions don't make me happy. Neither does the person working on the Refrigerator doesn't fix it, make me happy. So if I relied upon the refrigerator or the people that fix it to make me happy, I would be a very unhappy man. Now, things can improve your life. They can make your life more comfortable. Money can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. And money can buy you a bed, but money can't buy you sleep. And money can buy you a clock, but it can't buy you time. And money can buy you a book, but money can't give you knowledge. And money can give you food, and there's a lot of people with food shortage now, but it can't give you appetite. And money can buy sometimes friends for a while, but it can't buy you love. We think in America that the more we have, the happier we'll get. And that's sort of the mindset about Christmas, right? The more I buy for people the happier they get. I think, on the other hand, that the more stuff we have, the more stress we have with the stuff. Some people believe that when we get the vaccine, then we can be happy. 
pharmaceutical companies now have produced vaccines that are 95% effective. This Friday, they requested the FDA for emergency approval. And we surely hope that in December, this vaccine becomes available. But is the vaccine able to make us happy? Will we wait till the vaccine is out before we are happy? Some people believe that if I'm single, I can't be happy until I'm married. I have a niece who announced upon arrival at college, I've come to find a husband. <laughs> True. Now, I just want to say that being married, being married is a beautiful gift that God gives to us, right? But if you believe that marriage will make you happy, you're in for a big shock even before the honeymoon is over. Why? Because you're asking a person to do something no person is capable of doing. No person, listen to me, no person can make you completely happy. Your husband, you knew this, didn't you, wives? Your husband can't make you completely happy. He can't meet all your needs. The truth is, this is the truth. We always speak the truth here, right? Husbands let down wives. And wives let down husbands. And cats, they let down their owners. <laughs> Dogs come through, but cats are worthless. <laughs> so, where will you find in the pandemic? <laughs> Sorry for you cat lovers, I'm just... I shouldn't have said that. Where will you find this happiness? Happiness only comes through a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis wrote, God designed us human beings for a relationship. He's the fuel that runs the machine. He's the fuel our spirits are designed to feed on. God can give us happiness and peace apart from himself. My observation is that people with faith are the happiest because when you have faith, you have hope. You put your faith in Jesus, there's the hope of heaven, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God designed you to be happy, to laugh, to smile. God wants you to be happy in your soul. Remember when the angel came, we'll talk about this in Christmas. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. Realize that when that announcement was made, Caesar Augustus was ruling over the empire and heavy taxes were being levied. And Rome was exerting its influence worldwide. And religion was putting unnecessary burdens on people. But yet Jesus would bring joy back into the world. He said, rejoice to his disciples. Your names are written in heaven. God is giving you permission to be happy. That doesn't mean you won't ever be sad. Even in the midst of sorrow, there is joy. Paul said that in the midst of his sorrows, he had joy. Now, I want to try to unpack that for a moment before I go on. There was an event that happened in 1991. <clears throat> My wife, Debbie, was riding down the highway, and she was hit head-on by another car. And her mother was killed in that accident, taken to heaven. And I had tremendous sorrow in my heart over the loss, with the grief of losing her, because she really loved me. And before I was a believer, she prayed over me, and she prayed every day of her life for me. Great encourager to my soul. But I also felt great joy that she was out of suffering and that she didn't suffer and that she was in the presence of Jesus. You see, even in our greatest sorrows, God is able to give us joy, which is 
a mark of the Holy Spirit. 2,700 verses in the Bible speak to joy, laughter, gladness, feasting, and celebration. Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, that you may have joy and have it to the fullest measure. So as we turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, we come to the end of the book. It says, may God himself, the God of peace, the God who reconciles us to himself, may he sanctify you through and through, entirely. May your whole spirit, the spirit is that which communicates with God, your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, may your body, the physical part of you, be kept blameless, listen, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The letters of Thessalonians were written to give us hope. The first chapter, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 10, mentions the statement that we are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven. The second chapter ends with the question, who is our joy when Jesus returns? The third chapter finishes with a prayer that we may be strong and blameless and holy when Jesus returns. The fourth chapter, which is a chapter about the rapture, concludes with this statement, encourage one another with these words. And the last chapter of this book concludes with this prayer that we may be blameless until Jesus comes back again. You see, we long for our king's return. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. One of the uh, greatest stories I've ever heard about longing for a leader's return is the story of the explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. On August the 8th, 1914, he and 23 men set sail on a three-masted wooden ship from Plymouth, England, to be the first men to walk across Antarctica on foot. Shackleford recruited men with this advertisement. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. (laughs) Honor in case of success. Shackelford became known as the boss. Even though he did all the same chores on the ship, even though he promoted unity by equality. So they sailed to Antarctica and the ship got stuck and trapped in an ice pack. In January 1915, eventually the ship sunk, putting the men on what's known as an ice floe, this free-floating piece of ice in the Antarctic Sea. Shackleton kept the men busy by day and entertained by night. They played ice hockey. They led nightly song fests. They had regular dog sled competitions. It was on the ice floe that Shackleton proved his greatness as a leader. He sacrificed his right to a warmer, fur-lined sleeping bag so that one of his men who was cold could have a good night's sleep. He served them hot milk early in the mornings in their tents to cheer their spirits. And in April 1915, the, the ice floe threatened to break apart, forcing the men to take refuge on what's known as Elephant Island. Shackleton and five others from that island, as soon as it was spring, sailed off in a 20-foot lifeboat. They went 800 miles to Chile to get help. And finally, on August the 30th, after an enduring 105-day trip, Shackleton returned to rescue his stranded crew. 
But perhaps the real hero of the story is not him, but is Frank Wilde. Wilde was left in charge in Shackleton's absence. He maintained the routine of the established. He assigned their daily chores. He held sing-alongs. He planned athletic competitions. He generally kept up morale. He never lost hope in the return of the boss. And only four days of rations remained when Shackleton returned. He personally made several trips from the ship to rescue his men from Elephant Island. And so Shackleton was very intrigued by how ready the men were to get off that island, how prepared they were. So he inquired of them. And he said every night, Shackleton would, I'm sorry, Wilde would roll up his sleeping bag with the remark, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come back today. Get your stuff ready, boys. The boss may come back today. And sure enough, one day the ship came they were waiting and longing for. Shackleton's crew hoped their leader would return for them. They longed for his return. They could not be certain of his return. He was a mere man battling elements he couldn't control. But we have a sure promise that Jesus Christ is going to return for his church. The prophets have said it. The apostles agreed that soon and very soon we shall see the king. So number one, Jesus is coming back. The hope of the church is the second coming, the return of Christ. There is no question that he has come. And we are waiting now for his second coming. We believe that the second coming has two parts. The first part of the second coming is called the rapture. The rapture is when Jesus comes from his church. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, The Lord himself, not an angel, not the angelic host, not a myriad of angels, but the Lord himself, Jesus, will leave his throne room in heaven to come back to earth with a loud command, speaking of a military term, of him taking command. When Jesus gave the command to Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth, and he will issue a command to come forth, come up here, with the voice of the archangel. Now, we know that angelic beings spoke to Abraham about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that the angel spoke to Joseph and to Mary, And this is the voice of the archangel, most likely Michael. And with the trumpet call of God, the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive will meet the Lord in the air. The rapture is when God evacuates all his people before what's known as the great tribulation. Just like we evacuate people, like there's a fire in the west, we evacuate them from their homes. Or we evacuate people in the Gulf when there's a hurricane. Or we evacuate people before there's an invasion. Jesus Christ is coming for us in the rapture. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming with us. And that's where it says, see him coming on the clouds with great glory. And every eye will see him. He will establish his kingdom upon earth. So, what is the rapture? The rapture of the church is the future event when Jesus Christ descends from heaven to resurrect the bodies of those who fall asleep in Jesus and translate living believers into his glorious presence and escort them to heaven to be with him forever. So let me simplify this for you. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. 
And after his resurrection and his appearances, he went back to heaven. But Jesus is going to come back from heaven. He's going to snatch us away. He's going to carry us away. He's going to come for his church. And when he comes, he will resurrect the bodies of those who have died in Christ. The souls who have been with him in heaven, they will receive their heavenly bodies. And there will be some who do not die. I actually want to be one of those who does not die. I think it would be awesome just to be raptured out of here. Two people will be driving in a car, one a believer, one a non-believer. The believer will be raptured. Two people will be flying in an airplane, one a believer, one a non-believer. The believer will be taken up. You say, what will happen, R, Pastor R, if I am in the shower? Well, that's why you work out. <laughs> Little joke. If you know something's going to happen, you definitely want to prepare for it, right? He who has this hope, 1 John 3, 3, he who has this hope, sorry, sorry about that, Nicky cough. He, he who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. This implies that the world around us is impure, and we need to pursue holiness, sanctification. You see, the moment we are saved, there's... there's in salvation, there is an imputation and an impartation. When we are saved, we are justified. God imputes righteousness to us. But then progressively over the Christian life, the work of the Spirit is to progressively sanctify us, to impart to us greater and greater sense of holiness. You see, holy means to be set apart that we are not of this world, that we have been set apart. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. So, <clears throat> what would the Scriptures say to us we are to live before the rapture? We come now to the second point, that since Jesus is coming again, there is a godly lifestyle that is pleasing to God. You see, this prayer that's prayed here, that God may sanctify us, relates back to the whole argument from chapter 4 on. Listen for a little bit. Finally, brothers, this is chapter 4. We instructed you on how to live in order to please God. You see, he's coming back and he's instructing us on how to live a godly lifestyle. As, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do it more and more. And you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So when he was with them, he gave them these instructions. And now he writes to them to remind them of the instructions he gave. So what's he going to say? It is God's will for you that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. How shall we live before the rapture? The short answer is we shall live in moral purity. You see, when Paul and Timothy and Silas came to town, the people were living in paganism. They were living a promiscuous, permissive, pagan life. They did whatever they wanted to do. The flesh ruled. They didn't have any self-control. They didn't know who God was or who they were. And so Paul came to town to preach the gospel. And the gospel had a powerful effect upon their life. They came out of paganism into Christianity. They became followers 
of Jesus. They learn that this is the will of God, their sanctification, that they abstain from all this stuff like sexual immorality. The beautiful gospel was spoken to them, and the gospel is spoken to us. The gospel is good news. The gospel begins in heaven and ends up on earth. Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven to come down to earth. The prophet said he would come. He is the child who is born, the son who was given. He grew up in a town known as Nazareth. And when he was 30, he began his ministry. He went around doing good, healing people who were sick, raising people back to life who were dead, performing miracles, proving he was God, forgiving people of their many sins. Jesus became wildly popular and people were in awe of him, but the Pharisees became jealous of him and they plotted to kill him. And they arranged with one of his disciples to betray him. And even though he was innocent, he was crucified on a cross outside of the city. He died for our sins in our place. He paid a debt we owed that we could be free. And they buried him But on the third day, Jesus was raised back from the dead. And everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of their sins, the hope of heaven, and the Holy Spirit. And what happened was there was dramatic changes in these people because of the gospel. You see, what happens in the gospel when we believe is we take on a new identity. We are now children of God. You're not the same as you once were. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. We are made new. We have new desires. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. We understand that we were bought with a price, and now we desire to glorify God with our bodies. We begin to practice (laughs) self-control. You see, nobody walks through this world unscathed, unpolluted, We all have a sexual history. Like me, you could have been exposed to pornography when you were very young. You could have done stuff on dates that you weren't expecting to do. You may have many regrets about your past. The good news is that Jesus died on a cross. He became sin to wash away all of that sin of ours. When a Roman guard put a spear into his side, out of his side came both blood and water, blood for the atonement, water for the cleansing. And the Holy Spirit applies the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus to our hearts. You see, in their day, there was all these different sexual practices. There was a massive massive amount of prostitutes. In Corinth, there were 3,000 temple prostitutes who sold themselves to the highest bidder. Their belief that these prostitutes were servants of the pagan gods, and people felt close to the gods by having sex with the prostitutes. Prostitution was encouraged. You see, a man could have a wife and then have a concubine also on the side and consort with a prostitute whenever he wanted. The concubines were sold in the slave market. People could buy them for sexual pleasure. So what happened was a person could be married and consort with a prostitute and find themselves a concubine and then persuade a mistress 
to be with. And Paul wrote these words, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be pure and holy. The gospel delivered them from the filth and degradation of pagan society. Jesus changed the culture. They learned they had a new identity. They weren't slaves anymore to their sexual desires. They had learned to overcome, to conquer. They learned they could exercise self-control and say no to their passions. It says that they developed self-control. So how does this happen in our life? The Bible says to stay away from sexual sin. That means there's probably movies I shouldn't see. There's movies I can see and movies I shouldn't see. There's music I can listen to and perhaps music I shouldn't listen to. There's books that I can see and books I shouldn't read. There's friends I can spend time with and friends perhaps I shouldn't spend time with. There's parties I can go to and parties I shouldn't go to. You see, this God is not against sex. He says marriage is, the bed is undefiled. You can't defile a marriage bed. But marriage is reserved for the covenant. I'm sorry, sex is reserved for the marriage covenant. How do we keep this command? Well, we exercise self-control. Don't let your body control you. The question is, how do I live pure in this impure world? How do I avoid making some huge mistakes? I think the answer to the question has to do with the mind. The one thing I want to stress to you about self-control is that your mind is the command center. It's where your convictions are formed. You have to enter into agreement with God that this is how you wish to live. We all know that there's times in life when we're weak, right? We're weak late at night. So we remove temptations from ourselves so we don't fall into those temptations. I eat far less ice cream when I don't have it in the freezer. I eat much less french fries when I don't order them. I drink far less Guinness beer if I don't have it in my fridge, my broken fridge. I drink a lot less whiskey if I don't sit at the bar. You see, what God is saying to us is this. This is his will. But if we're going to cooperate with God's will, it will be us exercising self-control. Your body is meant to be holy. It's worthy of the respect of him who made you, who knows what's best for you, who redeemed you, and lives inside of you. Many people are asking the question, how far can I go? Right? But a better question is, how do I keep myself pure? Our culture says, basically, let yourself go. Christianity says the opposite, control the body. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. They don't know who God is. They're driven by lustful passion out of their cravings, these compelling urges, these overpowering desires. We as Christians have learned to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. We have died to that old life. We have buried the old man. We've been raised to newness of life. You see, this is what he's trying to stress in terms of sanctification. 
You aren't who you used to be, so don't live like you used to live. You are now a new man, so live in that new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Moving on, Paul would write here about this issue of peace. You'll pick it up in verse 13. It says, live at peace with one another. God wants us to live at peace with each other, to not be at war with each other. God wants us to make peace. You know, I look at the world that we live in and there's a lot of divisiveness. I see a lot of division. I see a lot of polarity. We will never come to peace as long as we are making accusations against one another. We'll never come to peace as long as we demonize one another. We'll never be at peace as long as we simply identify ourselves as a Republican or as a Democrat. But when I identify myself as a follower of Jesus Christ, the God of peace gives me peace with himself and it allows me to think the best of others, to believe that the outcome of the election is in God's hands, that I can actually turn off the news where I find no refreshment, no refueling, no encouragement. I can turn off the news and trust that God It's in his hands the outcome of this election. What I'm trying to say is that God wants us to live at peace. And this is what he says. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. In verses 16 to 18, he begins to give what's called the standing orders for sanctification. Look at me. Look at it. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The first standing order concerning sanctification is to be joyful always. One of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture is be joyful always. More than anything else, God commands us to be happy inside. God wants us to be truly deeply happy, not just in heaven someday, not happy when he raptures us out only, not just happy when we see Jesus face to face, not just when the circumstances turn for the better, not when we get the president we want or the Congress we want or the laws we want or the Supreme Court we want. You see, if we wait until the vaccine becomes available to be joyful, we will have missed out a lot in life. Our joy doesn't depend on our outward circumstances. Our joy comes from the Lord. That's why Paul would say, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. We don't rejoice in the news. We don't rejoice in the election. We don't rejoice in the outcomes. We rejoice in the Lord of who God is. That nothing will ever take from me his love. That God loves us in the midst of our trials and our tribulations, that God is good and he works all things together for good. He wants us to learn to rejoice. Secondly, second standing order is to pray continually. The word continually means to pray without ceasing, which is a medical and a military term. Without ceasing would medically refer to a persistent cough. You know, when you have a cough... You have a cough that seems to hang on. You don't cough all the time. You cough whenever you need to cough, right? 
It's this sense of persistence that it's meant in prayer. When Jesus said, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. It is prayer that we continually make before the Father. You see, we never give up in praying. Prayer is not meant for God to align his will to me, but it's meant for me to align to God's will. And without ceasing would refer militarily to a battle that wasn't won easily. Let's say the city had a stronghold and the enemy had become entrenched. So the military makes an attack. And let's say the city is Mosul and ISIS has become embedded and entrenched. Without ceasing, we refer to make efforts again and again to free the city. So the second standing order is to pray continually. And the third standing order is to be giving thanks in all circumstances which takes us to the door of thanksgiving. And this will be a thanksgiving like no other. I just want to say that thanksgiving is my favorite American holiday. I like everything besides the turkey. <laughs> we think of thanksgiving as a time for families to gather, but how about you all? Are you going to be gathering, traveling? For Debbie and I, we have a son who's deployed overseas we have two sons who live in Birmingham, 700 miles away, but we'll gather with Betsy and her family. I know many of you will stay home. When God commands us to give thanks, what does he want? God is not after the kind of thanks a six-year-old is forced to say when grandma gives him a pair of socks. God wants us to look past the things that disappoint, that sadden, depress us, to see the grace of God given to us. Remember the leper who gave thanks? He was the only one who returned to give thanks because he, he knew he received grace. We can choose an attitude of gratitude <clears throat> to push out the negative grumbling and complaining and replace it with peace. It begins with our hearts to be thankful in all circumstances. I told you last week about one of the most difficult times in my life, one of the darkest times. I had had surgery, and the surgery went about 95% well. And I was hospitalized again, and I had a spinal meningitis infection. The doctors went after it with a big guns antibiotics, vancomycin. And every day at Johns Hopkins, they would administer this medicine. I received a, a dose of Vancomycin at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. So the day was sort of shaped around these two-hour uh, injections. It took about two to two and a half hours to drop it in. They decided to give me a pick line and send me home. Um, now that meant I had to learn how to administer to myself for Debbie to help me with it. Honestly, my attitude wasn't very good. I felt like they had botched the surgery. I felt like I had been confined to a bed. I felt like I was a prisoner. It was in that moment, it was in that moment, that I believe the Spirit of God began to speak this to me, to give thanks in all circumstances. That my God was still on the throne. My God was still good. He had not forsaken me. He had not forgotten me. He was even administering his grace to me through this vancomycin antibiotic going to my veins. This pick line would keep me alive. See, God had given me a promise that what had happened to me would turn out for my deliverance 
by your prayers and by the provision of his spirit. I can testify to you that you can give thanks to God in the worst of all human circumstances because God will always be good. Be thankful in all circumstances. So, how do we get to happiness? We rejoice in the Lord. We pray without ceasing. And we give thanks no matter what the circumstances of your life are because God is always good. He's always faithful. So how about this prayer? We pray for one another. Verse 23. May God himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, all the parts of you. May your whole spirit become sensitive to God, your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, your body be kept blameless without fault at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You can't do it by yourself. It's definitely a work of the Spirit. Pray with me. Father, we've lived in very challenging times. So many here are in a serious battle. There's the battle of health. Some have been given a diagnosis, which is very troubling. Some are having a battle at work of just staying afloat financially, of doing enough work in this time to provide for your families. Some have been furloughed. Some are out of work. Some are facing food shortages where there's just not enough. Many are uncertain about the future. But you have not tied our happiness to the conditions, the circumstances that surround us. You've given us a pathway that if we follow it, we can actually rise above these circumstances to rejoice in the Lord always to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. For this is your will, Lord. This is how you want us to live. You want to fill your people with your goodness and with your joy. So I pray, Lord, for the fullest measure of your joy to flow into our lives as we remember who you are and what you have done, the beautiful gospel that sets us free. Sanctify us, Lord, through and through. Spirit, soul, and body, be blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Graves into Gardens is such an appropriate song for where we're going as a church because we're going to look at wonder in the month of December. You know, when Jesus came off the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples were gathered at the foot of the mountain. They were talking to somebody people saw him with awe. What I want you to rediscover in your life is the wonder and the awe of our God about how awesome he is and how wonderful he is. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the wonder of God. And I would like to just close by praying over you this beautiful benediction that we just heard preached about. Father in heaven, my prayer is that you might sanctify us, each and every one of us, wherever we are, Lord, in the journey, just starting out, known you for several years, known you all of our life, wherever we are, Lord, I pray that you might sanctify us, 
completely, entirely, through and through. That, God, you might, you're the God of peace, and you have reconciled us to one and to you and to one another. That we can have peace with one another, Lord. I pray for your peace upon each household. I pray, Lord, for wisdom concerning the travel plans for this Thanksgiving holiday and for gathering plans. And I pray protection over each family, Lord. Would you allow us, Lord, to laugh and rejoice and be glad and to enjoy each other's presence and tell the stories of your goodness, Lord, and pass them on to the next generation. And then, Lord, I pray for our spirit, our spirit to be encouraged. You've made our spirits alive. You brought us from death to life. But our spirits need to be encouraged, Lord. And so I pray for our spirits to be encouraged and our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, all of this to be kept blameless until the day of Christ. We know you're coming back, Jesus. We can't wait for the day. And we look forward to your return. And we want to be faithful, Lord. We want to be ready when you come back. We want to know the boss may come at any time. So Jesus, you come when it's time, and we're going to be your church waiting for you, being faithful until then. Lord, pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. Help us to see the fields that are white under harvest. Help us to see, Lord, the opportunities all around us, the many that are stressed and worried. I pray, Lord, that we can speak a word of encouragement to them that our God reigns. And we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.